Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. Have, have you all ever noticed that we have expectations about everything? I mean, many of our expectations are unrealistic or misapplied. Some are real, but most of them aren't. And we have expectations about everything. In my life, I see this show up uh, in my expectations on parenting. I see it all the time and, and how things should be. So my first son uh, was born on Christmas Day 2005. And when he arrived, he was silent. Like, didn't cry. I was always told, you know, doctors grab the baby by their feet and hold them upside down, spank them, they start crying. That wasn't how it went. And he didn't make a noise. And I, had to, I remember asking the nurse, is he okay? Is he okay? Is he okay? And they're like, yeah, yep, some babies just don't cry. And for the next couple days, he didn't even make a lot of crying. Like, Sarah would wake him up at night and put popsicles on his feet to wake him up, to get him to, get him to feed. And so... Um, the expectation that started clicking in my brain was that this is the one child who's not going to cry. This is it. And then about 30 minutes after we got home and there was no more nurse button, uh, I, this thought went through my mind, this isn't the way I thought things were going to be. This isn't the way I thought things were going to be. Our, our child also didn't go through the terrible twos, and the expectation that I began to impose was that we were the family that was going to bypass the terrible twos. And then we hit the tremendously terrible threes, and the thought that went through my mind was, this is not how I thought things were going to be. We took our first family vacation to Florida. We went to the beach. I had uh, the unrealistic expectation that a vacation with children would be a relaxing time on the beach. <laughs> our, our son hated the sand. He hated it. So we couldn't even go to the beach. I, I remember thinking during that vacation, this is not how I thought things were going to be. And last one for you. I just had this expectation that if I asked my kids to do something, <laughs> they would gladly do it. They would recognize, right? God has put me in authority over them, and they would honor me by responding the first time I asked them to do something, and they wouldn't just do it. They would do it with thankful hearts. <laughs> And, and when that didn't happen at about age three, I began thinking to myself again, this isn't how I thought things were going to be. This isn't how I thought things were going to be. Now, those are funny, but there's so many more unrealistic expectations I have for my kids all the time, and it usually ends with great disappointment on my part, not laughter. I just impose these expectations on them. And we could play these unrealistic, imposed expectations out in every area of our lives, right? Our marriages. If we want to stop and think about this, almost every fight we have as a married couple can be peeled back to unmet expectations. Almost every one. How about your job? You're dissatisfied with your job. Probably unmet expectations. How about our kids' sports teams? How about our professional sports teams? We can do this all over the place. Unrealistic, misapplied expectations. And just so we're all together, if you're following along in your notes, an expectation is a strong belief that something will happen or be the case in the future. 
An expectation is a strong belief that something will happen or be the case in the future. And there's an equation that expectations are part of. I like to call it the disappointment equation. And you can see it on the screen. You may want to write this in your notes. We'll come back to it later. But disappointment equals expectation over reality. It's where our expectations do not line up with reality and how life is playing out. We experience this all the time. And the more I've thought about this, I've thought about this all week, I really believe that misapplied expectations and unrealistic expectations are the root of all our disappointments, all of our arguments, our fights, divorces, and disagreements. It's unmet expectations. And this doesn't just happen in our relationships with one another. This disappointment happens in our relationship with God. I think it's why so many people leave the faith. Things don't go the way we want them to go or the way we pray they'll go, and we experience deep, deep disappointment with God, and we check out. I've been close to that, especially after my daughters died four years ago. I had people praying on five continents that God would save them, and he didn't answer that prayer the way I wanted him to. He didn't meet my expectations, and I was close to checking out. My expectations didn't line up with how God ought to be. And here's what I want us to know. This is so important. When we find ourselves most disappointed with God, and you can probably in your mind right now name when that has been or is currently, what's going on. When we find ourselves most disappointed with God, listen, God has not failed us, but our expectations of how God ought to be have failed us. When we find ourselves most disappointed with God, God has not failed us, but our expectations of how God ought to be have failed us. And that's why this story we're going to look at today is so important. This is Palm Sunday, the the Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to start the last week of his life. We're told in the Gospel of Matthew, they waved palms as he rode by. And... They imposed the wrong expectations on Jesus, and it would ultimately lead to their disappointment. And in the verses we're going to study, we can see that Jesus actually provides people with a new set of expectations that can lead away from disappointment, but the people miss them. And so my prayer for us today is that we won't miss these important characteristics of Jesus, that we'll have eyes to see Jesus for who he really is, that we won't impose our expectations on him, but we'll let him reveal himself to us. So would you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Chapter 19, we're going to pick up in verse 28. We've been in a series uh, for over a year in the the Gospel of Luke called The Life of Christ. We've been walking with Jesus and spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are black Bibles in the seat back in front of you. I want to encourage you to pick one of those up. I love it when people follow along and, and you can see where we're going. You can make notes. If you don't own a Bible, please take that home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. But if you're using a black Bible, Luke chapter 19 can be found on page 733. 733. So we've finally come to the last week in Jesus' life. 
On the screen, you'll see Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Back in chapter 9, it says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So for ten chapters, we've been on this journey to Jerusalem. It's taken nine months of Jesus' life. And during that time, he has healed people. He's given sight to the blind. He's made paralyzed people walk. He has taught the scriptures like no one has ever taught them with authority. And he's recently raised Lazarus from the dead. And because of all these miracles, people had put a lot of expectations on Jesus. And so I want to provide you with some of those expectations as a groundwork as we get started. Much of this is taken from Jewish history and the Jewish faith. The first thing we need to understand that will inform all of these expectations that people put on Jesus is that the Jewish people of Jesus' day had a passionate desire for freedom from the oppressive rule of Rome. If you're following in your notes, number one, the Jewish people longed for the Messiah to come. The anointed one of God, the deliverer, the rescuer, the savior. They longed for this freedom, that God would send the Messiah. And also, number two in your notes, the expectation is that the Messiah would be 100% human, not God. He'd be 100% human. God would never stoop so low as to come down and live with sinful people. He lived in heaven. And so the Romans came on the scene in 64 BC, 64 years before Christ, and Rome's goal was to bring peace through the world by dominating everyone who stood in their way. The people were expected to worship the Roman emperor, which the Jewish people did not. And if you didn't worship the emperor, then you faced persecution. And not only would you have been persecuted, you would have been taxed like crazy. Taxes on produce, sales tax, temple tax, occupational tax, custom tax, transit tax, city tax, house tax, meat tax, salt tax, road tax, and many other taxes. I mean, you can see, right, when Steve taught two weeks ago that Zacchaeus was a despised man as the chief tax collector, this is why they were oppressed through taxes, and they longed to be freed from this oppression of the Roman government, and they were waiting for the Messiah to free them. And since Jesus had done many miracles, they thought he was the one. He could be the one, but they imposed their own expectations on him. They longed for the good old days of King David, and they rightly read the scriptures that said David's throne would go on forever. But the people of Jesus' day thought, number three, if you're following in your notes, the Messiah would be a political and military leader. They thought he would be a political and a military leader. They expected this political and military leader to restore the nation of Israel and usher in the kingdom of God. And because the Messiah would be a political and military leader, number four, their expectation, if you're following in your notes, is the Messiah would be a conqueror. He would be a conqueror. And sticking with your notes right there, number five, since he was a conqueror, the Messiah would bring peace through violence. The Messiah would bring peace through violence. And so the people who lined the road in our story did believe Jesus was the Messiah. They just imposed the wrong expectations on him, and it would lead to disappointment. Just five days later, some of these people, not all of them, but some of them, instead of shouting Hosanna, which means he saves, they would shout crucify him because Jesus did not meet their expectations. 
And if we aren't careful, we can impose our own expectations on Jesus too, and it'll lead to disappointment. So let's dig into our text. That, that, those are the expectations of Jesus' day, of what they thought he would be. But Jesus reveals to us some different expectations. So beginning in chapter 19, verse 28, we're going to pick up with our story today. Verse 28 says, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. And so if you're following in your notes, the first thing that Jesus reveals to us about himself is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Lord. We've talked about this the past several weeks, but this is so important. There's many titles for Jesus in the Bible. He's a rabbi. He's a good teacher. He's a king. He's a prophet. He's Emmanuel. He's a healer. He's a friend. He's the Lord. And Jesus reveals that he is Lord, which means he's a ruler or a master or an owner. He's above everyone and everything. There is no equal to him. There is no created person or thing alongside of him or above him. The word Lord in the New Testament, which is kurios, actually implies that of an equal position to God. It's an equal position to God. And this is interesting. As we've walked through the book of Luke, we've seen that Jesus has frequently told people, don't tell people who I am. He's healed somebody and said, don't tell them, don't tell them. It's not time yet. But in this story, Jesus orchestrates this whole event. And Jesus chooses his words carefully. He didn't say, tell the owner of the donkey that the teacher needs it. Or tell the owner of the donkey that the prophet needs it. He said, tell the owner that the Lord needs it. He's making a bold statement about who he is. It's like Jesus is saying, hey, when he asks you, tell the owner that God needs the donkey. Tell him that God needs it. So the first expectation that Jesus reveals for us is that he is Lord, he is God. The second expectation that Jesus reveals, if you're following in your notes, is that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy and reveals he is the Messiah. He fulfills Old Testament prophecy and reveals that he is the Messiah. Did you know that over 40 prophecies are written about in the Old Testament, all fulfilled by Jesus, including this exact story, which was written down 500 years before Jesus was born? This story, Palm Sunday, is also recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And what we need to know about Matthew is he was writing to a primarily Jewish audience. So he was always trying to connect the Old Testament and Jesus. So Matthew, in chapter 21, verses 4 and 5, quotes the prophet Zechariah, which was written 500 years before Jesus. Would you read Matthew 21 with me in the first gray box in your notes? It says, 
This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And the Jewish people were always looking for signs. They would ask Jesus this, show us a sign, Jesus. Show us a sign. And so they looked for signs. They would have known Zechariah 9.9. And when they saw Jesus riding in on a donkey, this miracle worker coming in on a donkey, something would have clicked and they would have thought, Zechariah 9.9. He's the Messiah. He's the one. The problem was, though, is they didn't take into account the prophecies of like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 that would say the Messiah would be suffered and would suffer and be rejected and killed. They just read the prophecies that they wanted to read about who the Messiah would be. Their expectations of a king were different than what Jesus would provide. But Jesus reveals he is the Messiah who fulfills all Old Testament prophecy about the Deliverer, the Rescuer, and the Savior. He is the Savior. So I want to show you several other expectations that Jesus reveals to us, but we're going to have to dig just a little bit in the text to get those. Um, The first one that I want to show to you, if you're following in your notes, is Jesus is a humble servant. He reveals to us the Messiah is a humble servant, right? We just said that the people were looking for this king to come as a conqueror. So one would expect Jesus to be entering Jerusalem on the finest horse in the entire country. In victory parades and processions like this, which took place quite often, the king would ride a beautiful white stallion or be in a regal chariot mounted up high so everybody could see him. Right? No political or military leader at this time would ride a donkey in a coronation parade. A donkey was considered unsuited to the dignity of kings. Do you know who rode donkeys? The servants of a king rode a donkey. Servants rode donkeys, not kings. And Jesus chose a donkey not only because it fulfilled prophecy, but because he wanted to be crystal clear that his kingship would be marked by being a humble servant. He was a different sort of king. A different sort of king. Parents, in the room today, this is what your kids are learning about. That Jesus was a king, but he was different than what everybody else expected. So you can have a conversation about that at home. The other expectation that I want us to see has to do with the time of year this triumphal entry took place. The timing of this event would be at the beginning of the Passover festival. And this festival marked the Lord's miraculous deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. If you don't know this story, we'll all get caught up and brought up to speed. The story of the first Passover is found in the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 12. God's people were imprisoned in Egypt for 400 years, and Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go, even after nine plagues that destroyed their country. So God said, I'm going to send a tenth plague. It's going to be the angel of death. But before the 10th plague, God told his people this, there is a way to be saved. There is a way. It's to choose a sacrificial lamb, a perfect spotless lamb that would serve as a substitute for the sins of the people. And on that night in Egypt, the people would take the blood of this perfect spotless lamb and they would put it above their door frames 
and the angel of death would literally pass over their house. And while Egypt was mourning the death of all the firstborn sons, God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, and they started their journey home to the promised land. And the Jewish people have celebrated Passover every year from that day forward. And this is where the Bible comes to life. I love when we can dig in and find some of this stuff out. I find it absolutely amazing that Jesus chose to enter Jerusalem and be killed during Passover. He could have entered any time of the year, any other festival, but he chose Passover. What better occasion could there be for the Lord's chosen one, the Messiah, to make the ultimate and final deliverance of his people from slavery? And by doing this, what Jesus is revealing here, the expectation he's giving us, if you're following in your notes, is that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the Passover lamb. Just five days after this humble entry, Jesus would die in our place on the cross after living a perfect life with no sin. And it would be his blood that would pay the penalty for our sins so that our separation from God would pass over us. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 even says this. It speaks to this Passover lamb. Paul says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus was revealing to us by the time of year he chose to do this, that he was the Passover lamb. Listen, he wasn't going to use violence to conquer. He was going to experience violence in order to conquer sin and death. His triumph was going to be of an altogether different kind. Everything Jesus is doing here, the Lord needs it. Fulfilling prophecy, humble servant, on a donkey, entering during Passover. It is screaming, I'm not going to fulfill the expectations you have of me. I have a different way of doing things. And they just missed it. They missed it. Let's pick back up in verse 35, if you're following along in your Bibles. They brought it. They brought the donkey to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So make no doubt about it. The people honored Jesus. They were excited to see Jesus. They thought he was the Messiah. They laid their cloaks, probably the only cloak they owned in those days because of the oppressive poverty. The only cloak they owned, they threw on the ground for a donkey to ride over. And then we jump right back into misguided expectations in verse 38, which is from Psalm 118. It's a psalm of deliverance, sometimes called the conqueror's psalm. It's a song of victory, a hymn of praise to God who defeats all his foes and establishes his kingdom. But remember, Jesus' kingdom is of another kind, and his victory would be over sin and death, not the Romans'. They would shout, in Matthew it tells us, they would shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means he saves, or save now, or save us. But they wanted to be saved as a nation more than they wanted to be saved from their sins. They would wave palm branches, which was a sign of rebellion. It was a nationalistic sign of rebellion. Palm branches. 
They just imposed the wrong expectations on who Jesus was. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd in verse 39, they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Just like they had said to the children. Just like they had said to the blind man. They're like, keep quiet. This isn't the Messiah. They had their own uh, set of wrong expectations. But they tried to keep the people quiet. And in verse 40, Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And then would you read verse 41 with me in the second gray box on your notes? It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But it is now hidden from your eyes. I'll continue in verse 43 if you follow along in your Bibles. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. As Jesus left the Mount of Olives, And headed toward Jerusalem, he wept over the city and told what would become of it just 40 years later. In horrifying detail, Jesus paints the picture of what Titus and the Romans will do to the city in 70 AD. But this is what I want us to notice. I want us to see this. Jesus does not take delight in this judgment. Jesus weeps over it. It brings him great pain. It brings him to tears. He weeps for Jerusalem as he thinks about their future suffering. And if you're following in your notes, what Jesus reveals to us about the Messiah, about who he is, is that Jesus weeps over judgment. He weeps over it. The only other place in Scripture that references Jesus weeping is when his friend Lazarus dies in John chapter 11, verse 35, and we see Jesus weep over death. It's not just this a uh, manly uh, little, he got something in his eye and a tear ran down his cheek. It means it's a wailing and a lamenting. He is wailing over this judgment. And it seems that Jesus was saddened because his fellow Jews looked for military solutions to their problems rather than spiritual ones. They looked to a political Messiah rather than the Lamb of God. And I just thought this week, this, this thought went across the ticker of my mind. Do, do I, do we weep over judgment? Does it pain us to know that there are people going to hell? Or are there times, or are there people groups that we hear about in the news and we say things like, they're getting what they deserve? Hell's okay for them, they're bad guys. And if I'm honest, I don't weep over judgment nearly enough, and this is a good reminder of what Jesus cares about, people who don't know him. And if we want to become more like Jesus, like we've been learning in this series, then I want to care for people who don't know Jesus, and I want to weep over the judgment that's coming for people that don't know him. Jesus longs for all people to be saved, and it pains him when people choose to reject him. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it captures this. It says, God wants everyone to be saved and to know the whole truth, which is there is only one God, and Christ Jesus is the only one who can bring us to God. Jesus was truly human, and he gave himself to rescue all of us. 
He wants everyone to be saved and he weeps over judgment. Lastly, we see that Jesus, if you're following your notes, Jesus is a peacemaker. He's a peacemaker. Jerusalem literally means city of peace. And Jesus weeps because the people of the city of peace missed what would bring them peace. They still miss it today. That's why there's fighting and war, because they've missed it. If you look in your Bibles, in verse 41, go back to verse 41 with me. Jesus says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. And later, jump to 44 with me. In verse 44, Jesus says, but you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. In the New Living Translation, in verse 44, it says, because you did not accept your opportunity for salvation. You didn't accept your opportunity for salvation. Jesus came to bring peace. He came to bring peace. Friends, all of us have sinned. All of us have sinned and gone our own way. We've all wanted other things more than we've wanted God, and our sin has separated us from God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, the Apostle Paul writes this, This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. And that includes all of us. It includes everyone in this room. At some point in our lives, we've all been enemies of God and separated from him. It includes the people of Jerusalem as Jesus wept over their city. But the good news that Paul gives us in the next verse, in Colossians 1, verse 22, he says, Yet now he, Jesus, has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Friends, for everyone who turns from their sins and places their trust in Jesus, And what he did on the cross, your sins are forgiven. And Paul would go on in Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 to write these words. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. Jesus is a peacemaker. He's a peacemaker. And so if you're here this morning and, and you don't yet follow Jesus, as verse 44 says in the New Living Translation, don't miss this opportunity for salvation. Don't miss God's visitation. If you're here and you have, you have built your life, you have centered your whole life on something or someone else, and deep down there's just a restlessness and a disappointment that you have in your life, and you are trying to fill your life with everything you can find for meaning and purpose, the only thing that will fill that void is a relationship with Jesus because it's the only thing that will ever provide you peace with God. And so, if you are here this morning, this is the day you can have peace with God. You can say, Jesus, I've done this on my own long enough. This stinks. 
I'm restless. I'm disappointed. I don't want to live like this anymore. I trust what you did on the cross. Would you forgive me? Today can be your opportunity for salvation, and what an incredible week leading up to Easter that would be, right? What an incredible week that could be. If you identify as a follower of Jesus here, then I want us to think together as we wrap up, I want us to think together about experiencing disappointment, experiencing disappointment with God. And just like the crowd in our story, we all put our own expectations on Jesus, right? I mean, we don't say this out loud, but we often expect that if we believe and live correctly, if we believe and live correctly, we live good lives, then we'll have great marriages, and we'll have healthy bank accounts, and we'll have well-behaved children, and we'll have freedom from major problems, and we'll have limited health concerns. We expect blessings from our obedience. We expect blessings. We expect, expect a trouble-free life. Many times, we expect God to operate on our time frame, which leads to disappointment. Man, oh man, did I struggle with this one when we were in the adoption process. It took five years. And every time we got an email or a telephone call that it was going to take longer than they thought, I would experience this deep disappointment with God for days because my unrealistic expectations were not matching reality. I expected God to work on my time frame, and he doesn't do that. We sometimes have this expectation that Jesus came to save us from this life and fix all our problems, but in fact, he came to save us from death. He didn't come to save us from our problems. We do think he's going to fix our problems, but he loves us so much that he did something even better. He died to forgive our sins and free us from our separation with God. And so here's the best news I can give you today. Here is the best news I can give you. When you come to Jesus, you get Jesus. You get Jesus. When you come to Jesus, you get Jesus who is the Lord and in control of all things. You get Jesus who is the Messiah, your deliverer, your rescuer, and your savior. You get Jesus who was a humble servant. And although he was God, he came to this earth so he could identify with us and know how we feel and experience what we experience. You get Jesus who gave his life as the Passover lamb. You get Jesus who wanted to be with us so badly for eternity that he went to the cross and gave his life so that we could have peace with him. When you come to Jesus, you get Jesus. And that's not just good news for heaven, it's good news for now. Because when we trust in Jesus, he lives in us through the power of his Holy Spirit. And he gives us love and joy and peace and patience and wisdom. And he gives us freedom from the bondage that we're in to slavery. And he breaks addictions and bad thought patterns. We get Jesus. But if you're like me, here's what I do. I don't always think that's the best news. I tend to forget that good news when things don't go my way and I get disappointed with God. When God doesn't meet my expectations, it leads to my disappointment with Him. And so I want to give you two questions to ask yourself that have helped me. 
two questions that have helped me. Remember who Jesus is and what he promises. I found these to be expectation-correcting questions. The first question, if you're following on your notes, where are you facing disappointment with God? Where are you facing disappointment with God? Where, where do you believe that God has failed you? Where are you saying, well, this is not how I thought things were going to be? Or this is not how I wanted God to handle this? Where are you facing disappointment with God? Is it in a relationship? Is it, um, is it in your work? Is it with your kids? Is it with your spouse? Is it with him? Is it, um, man, you just have a really hard time getting pregnant. And you see a lot of people getting pregnant. And that's great disappointment. Is it your kid has wandered off and they're not in a relationship with the Lord? What is it? We all experience disappointment. And in a moment, we're going to give you several minutes to think about this. And we encourage you to do this throughout the week. This is a good exercise. Spend some time identifying where you're experiencing disappointment with God. And name it. And tell him. He will meet you in that disappointment. And after you've named that disappointment, I want to invite you and challenge you. Peel that disappointment back and ask God what expectation you've imposed on that. What expectation have you imposed on that? If you're following in your notes, what are your expectations of Jesus? If you remember our graphic from earlier today, disappointment equals unrealistic expectations over reality. It's when our expectations don't match up with reality. And so to understand our, the, the reason I give you two questions is because to understand the disappointment, we have to find out what expectation we've imposed to get there. And so if you're here and you are gripped with disappointment this morning, I'm praying you don't give up on God. I'm praying you don't give up on him. I have been there. And I can tell you that although it's not easy, these times of disappointment can lead us to a greater understanding of who God is. It can lead us to a bigger picture of God if we allow it. Don't give up on him. And what I pray during this exercise, I want to say these words again. Remember that if we're disappointed with God, it's not God who has failed us. It's our expectation of how God ought to be that has failed us. And that's why I'm so grateful for stories in the Bible like this that reminds us of who Jesus is, of what he promises, of what he reveals, and what he's done for us. Man, I need those reminders every single day. So we want to give you a couple minutes here, some space. This might be a busy week coming up for you. You're traveling or you're hosting Easter. And we just want to give you the gift of a couple minutes of reflection. Where are you facing disappointment with God? What are your expectations behind that disappointment? And, and if you're struggling to name that with God, where is there disappointment in other relationships in your life? expectations behind that disappointment.
So I just want to give you a few minutes to reflect on those things. everybody in this room would you remind us would you remind us that you are the Lord that you are the Messiah who fulfills all scripture you are the deliverer rescuer and savior you are a humble servant you are the Passover lamb everyone to be saved no matter what they've done in their past you long for them to know you and that you long for them to have peace with you God whether we are followers of Jesus or not yet followers of Jesus in this room we pray that you would remind us of those things and God for those in this room suffering deep disappointment either with you or in other relationships God, would you bring to mind often the truth of your word that you are faithful and trustworthy and good? And would you heal the brokenhearted? God, would you remind them that the best news, the best news is you, Jesus. It's you. And we need you. So God, we're grateful for who you are. Thanks for revealing that to us in your word. Thanks for this story that we got to study today. It's in Jesus' name. Everybody greet and said, amen. Well, I want to invite the prayer team down front or any elders in the room. If this is the day where you said, I I am restless, I'm just disappointed in life, I don't have peace with God and you want to talk about that, we would be honored to talk about that with you. We'll be down front. If, if you simply want to pray about some deep disappointment in your life, we, we would be privileged to pray with you for that. We'll be down front for that as well. But as we thought about how to close this service, I, I thought we would just read Scripture together. There's some hymns that they used to sing in the early church. We don't know what the music sounds like, but we have the words. One of those is in Philippians 2, and it reminds us of who Jesus is. And so as we close today, let's just stand together to honor God's word. And let's read this as one church in full voice, and especially when we get towards the end when it just says that Jesus has been exalted to the highest place. Let's just... Man, let's just think about what we're saying. So let's read this together, church. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing 
by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen. You're dismissed. Thank mm-hmm. you.